0: Hey, this is Aaron here to let you know that this episode of The War on Cars is sponsored by Cleverhood. Cleverhood makes rain capes designed specifically for people who bike and walk. I've been wearing Cleverhoods for years. I'm a huge fan. If I am biking or walking the dog and it is raining, I am wearing a Cleverhood. And you can too, starting today and for a limited time only listeners of the war on cars will receive a 20% discount on every product in the Cleverhood store to get that discount go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars and when you check out enter coupon code war on cars one word again for 20% off on some really nice rain gear go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars enter coupon code war on cars when you check out Stay safe and dry when you walk and bike. Wear a clever hood. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode.
1: This is The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. In our last episode, honk if you loved 2020. Aaron, Sarah, and I discussed the many ways in which cars and trucks played an oversized role in the presidential campaign. If you haven't heard that one, you might want to go back and give it a listen. This episode does stand on its own, but you can consider this one a companion piece or a deeper dive on one of the subjects we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So if you were paying attention in the week prior to the election, and let's face it, who could tear themselves away from the news or refreshing their phone, then you probably saw a video from Friday, October 30th, of a Biden-Harris campaign bus on I-35 in Texas. And it was surrounded by a Trump train, a caravan of pickups and SUVs, many flying Make America Great Again flags. In videos posted online the drivers of these trucks are seen getting really close to the bus one even crashes into a white suv maybe intentionally this suv was later reported to have been carrying biden campaign staffers politically motivated vehicular violence is sadly nothing new in this country but something about this particular incident seemed like a major escalation it was something we hadn't quite seen before And there were two things that personally disturbed me about it. One is that the news of the events in Texas basically flew by without much discussion, almost as if our country sort of decided that this was just another wacky day in the 2020 campaign. That's partially due to the fire hose of information we're all trying to drink from, and it makes stopping for deep conversation a bit tough. But it was hard for me not to be a little concerned by how little people were concerned about this event. The second thing that I found really disturbing was that the entire thing was basically celebrated at a campaign event in Florida featuring United States Senator Marco Rubio.
0: Listen, I saw yesterday a video of these people in Texas. Did you see it? All the cars on the road with us. We love what they did, but here's the thing they don't know. We do that in Florida every day.
1: Now, Senator Rubio has plausible deniability here because technically he is comparing the Trump train to the boat parades we saw in Florida and other parts of the country. And in those events, no one was running a Biden-Harris boat out of the water. But still, something about his joking really disturbed me. To help me make sense of it all, I spoke to someone who has written extensively on cars and driving and their place in the American legal system, Greg Schill. Greg is an associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. On Election Day, The Atlantic published his article about what happened in Texas and the broader trend of vehicles as political weapons. As always, we want to thank all of our listeners for your support. Now here's my interview with Greg Schill. Greg Schill, thanks for joining The War on Cars. Thanks for having me. As far as the incident in Texas on I-35 goes with the Biden-Harris campaign bus. You know, I was struck by how few people condemned it, and and so many people actually encouraged it. And what struck me about that was that, you know, we often do just sort of excuse away traffic violence. But here we had a a political act of violence committed using traffic. And really, people thought almost nothing of it. Why do you think that is?
2: I think the reason uh, many elected officials and other conservatives have found it difficult to condemn and have even encouraged um, actions like the Trump train uh, operation against the uh, Biden-Harris bus in Texas, is these kinds of operations exist in a gray area where um, a lot of the relevant actors have plausible deniability. They know also that law enforcement is going to be reluctant to bring the hammer down and there weren't any reported injuries in that case. Um, in a sense, what was happening was obviously illegal and and violated core democratic norms. But in another sense, you're talking about a bunch of vehicles on a highway that have a legal right to be there. So I, th- I think that what you're looking at is um, a particularly vile form of opportunism that plays with this a gray area category that we put vehicles in.
1: In your article in the Atlantic you you make a lot of comparisons to the differences between how we treat gun violence and how we treat vehicular violence and and you mentioned the sort of opportunism you know that cars belong on the road. So if violence happens on the road there's a plausible deniability there. Whereas with guns, you know, even if someone has a legal right to carry one, if someone brings one into a movie theater or a school classroom, we tend to think that's a gross violation of what we think the gun is for. But with cars, they belong on the road. So if something happens, there's nothing stopping anyone from saying, well, I was on the road. This was just an accident. Uh, We happened to see the bus and wanted to, you, you heard people say this, we were just accompanying it, giving it a good Texas welcome. And so there's a sort of wink, wink, no big deal aspect to a lot of this as well
2: to me that's obviously pretextual and um nonsense but those are the types of excuses that are regularly heard and validated by uh, law enforcement um dmvs courts and so on and so we just it it uh the water found the the hole in the roof if you will the hole in the roof was this status that that cars and um, driving enjoy that makes it beyond critique. And so you're going to have bad actors flood into that once that's kind of well understood.
1: And in fact, in your article on The Atlantic, you said participants in the Trump train had a reason to think they could get away with this, which is that our legal system forgives few acts of violence so readily as those committed with a motor vehicle, even those done on purpose.
2: Yeah, I I think... You know, if we can zoom out for a moment here and, and maybe away from the specific events on a highway and think a little bit more about conflict on the street, and not even necessarily political conflict. Like suppose your rival football team wins the Super Bowl and, you know, the fans are out in the street and maybe you're annoyed because you're a fan of the other team or maybe you're just annoyed because you're trying to get to work or trying to buy a jug of milk. Right. And you have to kind of navigate that. So there's... You know, if you're both on foot, um, there's the potential for some jostling and so on. Um, and of course, fights do break out in, in that type of setting, so there can be deliberate acts of violence. But the stakes are a lot lower, right? When you're talking about people that are just on foot, and the kind of the potential for true destruction and loss of life is a lot lower. That's one type of conflict, and you could you could expand that to political conflicts as well. We've seen many of those this year, and when Vehicles and guns are not used. Similarly, there's they're basically peaceful demonstrations, even when there's a counter demonstration, and they don't you know you don't even necessarily need law enforcement to keep it peaceful, um, because in the absence of uh, a kind of trump card, if you will, in the form of a, a truck or a gun, they will stay more naturally peaceful. But then you have this this huge disparity in power when you have people marching or playing in the street or literally crossing the street on the one hand and people operating heavy machinery that with the push of a button can go 60 miles an hour in three seconds, um, which is the, the promise of the new Hummer, uh, with a a thousand horsepower. That's a different situation. I mean, that's, that's a conflict, I suppose, but, but it's different in kind rather than in an extent from the type of jostling that you might have after the jets win the Super Bowl. And that's not something that our legal system is prepared for.
1: Why do you think that is?
2: We, over the last century, as you know, I've written about this elsewhere, we've bent our legal frameworks in service of automobility, right? So in service of driving. And so you could make a, you could do kind of a legal analysis of all of the ways that that's negatively impacted walking and safety and public health and racial equity and all of that. But that. You know the the root of that is the presumption of automobility as a as the priority. If you're prioritizing driving over the other things, then suddenly it makes sense to fold these other considerations away, push push them under the rug. So, you know, if the goal is to enable fast, uh, free driving, then suddenly things like what happens if an errant driver. Injures somebody who is um, not following the law. Um, that just suddenly becomes like not a hard problem, you know. It, it's not. It's not a tier one policy priority, and that's what's happened. And so, when you have an overriding priority in any domain, you can expect lots of other priorities to just suffer. And so, the problem here is that that priority is uh, the one that we chose has. A lot of pros and cons. I, th- I think the pros and cons, the trade-offs, vary a lot where you, based on where you are. And one argument I make in the article is it's really important to develop more kind of spatial sensitivity about where cars are appropriate and where they're not, just like we do with guns. But it, this all proceeds from the assumption that cars and that driving is the the activity that we want to prioritize. Um, and so these are what we're talking about when we're talking about a stroller being crushed or a Trump train, you know, intimidating protesters. These are all um, different
1: sides of the same die. That prioritization of moving traffic at sort of at all costs becomes a thing then that law enforcement exploits. I mean, here in New York and other cities, when protesters take to streets, one of the biggest things that people on foot can be charged with is obstruction of traffic. You have one foot off the sidewalk and suddenly the cops now have an excuse to arrest you and clear you out of the area.
2: There's a history of police officers using unlawful presence in the street as a as an excuse for an armed intervention. And there are a lot of pieces to that, right? Like the fact that we universally arm police officers, race, police contracts. I mean, it, it's a it's a many-sided problem, but one unavoidable Aspect of it, if you're thinking about reform, is the fact that our laws empower armed intervention when someone is in the street uh, in a place where they're not supposed to be. One and two, the law is a little unclear about where you're allowed to be in the street, actually, and a lot of police officers don't know <laughs> don't know the law, and often uh, inter- they apply an interpretation that they, that comports with their opinions rather than. The actual text of the traffic law, which is, it's just, it's not a subject that's um, well taught or where compliance is treated as an authentically important subject. It's it's much more of a kind of vehicle for flushing out uses other than driving. And so in that sense, the details don't matter as much.
1: So I want to get back to your article a little bit. You, you wrote, um, unlike people who commit gun violence, drivers who hit people benefit from a certain ambiguity. And in the case of, of the protests that we've seen, whether it's the Trump train or Black Lives Matter protests, there is this sort of plausible deniability. So if a, if a car is surrounded by protesters, the driver can merely say, I was afraid for my life. And that's why I then hit the gas and plowed into them. And in fact, that's sort of what happened over the summer here in New York when two police cruisers were surrounded and one of them just lurched forward The drive, the driver's went right through the crowd of people. And our police chief here in New York, Dermot Shea, basically said the officers were afraid for their lives and they had to therefore go right forward, even though there was plenty of space right behind them. You write about this in the article a little bit, You know, was the driver acting out of fear? Were the protesters in the street? Did they belong there? It seems like that's also exploiting a lot of this ambiguity that we have in non-protest situations.
2: It is. It's also, so the, I think there are two pieces there. One is the justifiable use of force in self-defense when you uh, reasonably fear for your life or safety. And then, and then the other is the car context. But the, the first one is you know totally well established as a principle of law. And you also see it in many other contexts. Building into the second point, You also see that defense used with gun violence. Think back to uh, the Trayvon Martin killing, right? That's one example. More recently, Carl Rittenhouse, the uh, right-wing extremist who went up to Kenosha and opened fire on some protesters there with his AR-15. Yeah, so he also said he feared for his life. The difference is that the legal system knows how to handle that problem. That doesn't mean it always reaches the right result, but... A lot of people hear that excuse and think either that it's pretextual or that they want to learn more, like they they don't accept it on its face. And so Kyle Rittenhouse is now outstanding trial for murder. George Zimmerman's stood trial for murder. He was acquitted. But nevertheless, like the legal system knows what to do with that. In the driving context, uh, I think this, this summer's events really underscore this. Ari Weil, who uh, I know you had on the show recently and, and is uh, very deep in studying these uh, vehicular ramming incidents. You know he looked at one hundred and four incidents over the summer and determined that charges have been brought in only thirty nine cases. You know, many of them were immediately deemed accidents. Others were in kind of a gray area. And then some of the ones where charges were brought, they're they're brought for what I would call a glorified traffic offense, like reckless driving, even where somebody was seriously injured. So we, we clearly just are not equipped to handle this because this is a category where for a century we have said, um, we don't want to scratch too much on the surface here because the overriding goal is facilitating driving. And so once we start peering in too closely, it could be me. The policymakers here, and for that matter, juries, it's not only a, an elite story, are worried that it could be them next. And the thing is that never, that doesn't really seem to happen in the context of guns. Even when you have gun owners, right? There's a very deep divide in this country about gun control and the the extent of gun safety regulation that is appropriate. But when you're talking about the use of a gun in an offense, there's no debate about that at all. There's bipartisan consensus. We have uh, sentencing enhancements for crimes at the federal and state level if you literally have a gun on you that is unloaded, does not work, and is not brandished or physically you know, shown during the crime, you can go to jail for an extra five years or longer. You know, we, we have this universal consensus on the potential harm of guns and the need to prohibit the unjustified use of guns. In the vehicle space, we view the product itself more benignly than we view guns. I mean some Americans view guns as benign. Many more see them as things that have the potential to do harm but not necessarily kind of like a kitchen knife, right? Where if you if you see somebody brandishing it you know that some, that somebody's abusing it, but but there's nothing intrinsically kind of bad about it. And for cars we we're at another remove where we aren't willing to even subject them to the type of regulation that we would a kitchen knife you walk around Times Square with a kitchen knife, people are going to move away from you very quickly. If you're going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit in Times Square, I mean, some people who see you will, you know, move out of the way faster. But generally speaking, that's that happens every day. There's nothing newsworthy or notable about that. We don't have a nuanced sense of where uh, it is appropriate to drive and and how to drive in those places, and versus where it's not appropriate.
1: So that makes me think of another part of your article where you talk about. J.J. McNabb, an expert at George Washington University, where he was talking about uh, an incident in which a man approached protesters, revs his engine, he drives into a crowd, but you know, he was a Klansman. He was flying a Confederate flag. It was very clear what his motivations were, but oftentimes the motivations are not clear, even though we might look at a video and say, oh, for sure, this person intentionally drove into those people.
2: The fact that this person is charged and that's held up as an example of accountability, it really it underscores the, the limited nature of accountability for vehicular assaults. So think about this, again, in the context of uh, outside of vehicles. Suppose someone uses another weapon and they, they shout at the person a racial epithet and then they attack them and then the, they get prosecuted for a hate crime. But there's also a charge, just the underlying assault or attempted murder. And suppose the, the jury doesn't accept that this person yelled a racial epithet. There's a conflict in testimony and they say, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, we can't say. But the person clearly committed the assault or the attempted homicide. So that person is going away for a very long time, even though it's not a hate crime. In this case, the assailant has given the prosecutors a gift by leaving a paper trail, uh, documenting their extremist ideology, that would be it'd be very easy to connect that to the motivation of the driver at the time that he drove through the uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, right? But suppose he didn't give prosecutors that gift. Suppose instead he just harbored these views and maybe shouted at them out of the window and then drove through. Now, he's going to say that he feared for his life, which is, of course, what he would also say if he used a baseball bat or a gun. The question is, which interaction is our legal system better prepared to manage. And we are very practiced at sweeping quote, accidental uh, collisions under the rug. It's going to be a lot easier for him to say, yeah, yeah, I yelled at them because I wanted them to get away from my car. And I don't agree with them. Is that a crime? We have the first amendment here, but I never intended to hit them. Of course not, God forbid. That's just much more plausible when somebody is a driver uh, than when they're shooting a gun or, or wielding another weapon. Now, some of that is, as I say, encoded in our legal system. Uh, but I think there's, you know, another aspect as well, which is, you know, your visibility from inside the car is limited, um, especially if you're talking about things that are, if you're the driver, things that are happening on the right-hand side of the car or behind the car, and your sense of space and distance, and depth and proportion and so on, your ability to assess the motivations of people outside the car or where they're likely to walk, all of that is very limited. And so the question is, what do we do with that? Our current response is to throw up our hands and just hope that it works out. Like pray for the, the people who, who are doing these things intentionally that they also have a paper trail. Like that's great. Okay. That's a tiny minority of even collisions in this context, even vehicle rammings that are you know, political and intentional. Then you expand that that of course is a small minority of total vehicle pedestrian conflicts. So if you expand it beyond there, you're really talking about basically lawlessness. And then there are tiny exceptions where somebody has been very conspicuously hateful. And that's, that's a pretty um, indefensible system, I think. And so the way to reform that, in my view, is not to outlaw the use of the vehicle in public space the way we do to varying degrees uh, with guns but rather to develop a a keener sense of where it's appropriate to use and and how it should be used in those contexts. Right now, we treat streets of New York City, the densest, biggest city in the country, pretty akin to the way we treat highways in Iowa. And I don't think that really can be defended.
1: I was thinking also in in your answer that in just the sort of average, everyday vehicular violence that we read about that's not politically motivated. Here in New York, Prosecutors, district attorneys have established what they call the rule of three, which isn't really um, based on legal precedent. But basically, what they say is that in order to prosecute a driver who injures or kills uh, someone else, a pedestrian or a cyclist, you usually have to prove that the driver was committing sort of three separate acts. So if they run a red light and kill someone, that alone is not going to be enough to pursue a case. But if they run a red light and you can prove that they were texting, and they fail a breathalyzer test, then chances are you're going to be able to secure a conviction. And so, you know, in thinking about the incident we talked about about the the Klansman, like it has to be this egregious act where, like you said, that the the person who commits the crime gives prosecutors like an unassailable gift that they just can't really explain it away through some other means.
2: I couldn't agree more. I think there are a lot of pieces there. So one is the fact that whether that decision is motivated by ideology or on the other, whether that's rooted in the experience of unsuccessful prosecutions. And it's an empirical question that I don't know the answer to. My hunch is that it's a mix. Um, And I think that just suggests that there's a lot of levers that one could pull on. If you're thinking about reform, uh, that reform could take place maybe at the prosecutorial or law enforcement level. Um, But you're also thinking about judges and culture, like shaping perception of these interactions. You're also thinking about increasing, and this is gonna sound a little a bit of a bank shot, but you know, the less people identify as a driver, the less they're worried about being in that position. And so that's not really a plausible response in most of the country. But in a place like New York, to the extent the city can be urbanized more than it already is that's that's one you know uh, way to to help manage this there's also a kind of a sociological angle i mean one question i would be interested to know is whether like DMV judges who are also known to be very lax on drivers? Like, do they receive free parking with their assignment? You know, that's going to affect the composition of the bench. So I think there are, I, I mentioned this less as a specific way of targeting one cohort of people and more as a way of thinking about like, what are the levers that one could push on to try to affect change? And, you know, the work that you're doing with the podcast is a, big part of that, because there is just no shortcut, there is no way to to change this without changing hearts and minds.
1: It seems like some of this also has to do with attention, because there is a time not too long ago before social media, when an attack on a campaign bus would have dominated the news for days, if not an entire week. But now it just sort of flits on by, and we're on to the next thing. It
2: happened that President-elect Biden was not on that bus, and neither was Vice President-elect Harris. But Wendy Davis, who was the Democratic nominee for the Senate uh, recently, um, she was on that bus. And it certainly is possible that the president-elect could have been on that bus and that there could have been more violence, not just that one collision. And yet there's been really no national conversation since then about the risk of these types of operations. Contrast that with the assassination of JFK. I know that's not a perfect analogy. He was actually assassinated and... Uh, He was president and so on. But you might expect there to be like 10% of the conversation that happened um, after that. And that's not, that's not happened. A dozen firearm bills were introduced after his assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin, had bought his gun by mail. um, And, uh, you know, a ban on um, purchases by mail was immediately introduced in Congress. Um, It took several years in fact, it wasn't until his brother, RFK, was assassinated in sixty eight that that LBJ signed the Gun Control Act into law that that actually did ban mail order sales and so on. And, and we continue to debate gun control to this day. It's not like a settled question. However, the unjustified use of firearms is settled. That how you know how we manage that is settled, and we are much more able to identify when the use is justified and when it is not. And None of that is true for cars.
1: Greg Schill, that is a interesting note to end on. Um, not particularly optimistic about where this is headed, but this is a really fascinating area of discussion. I really thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for my interview with Greg Schill. I will put a link to his articles and other material in the show notes. Many thanks to our friends at Cleverhood. You can get one of their stylish rain capes designed for walking and biking by visiting cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Enter code WarONCARS, that's all one word, at checkout and you will get 20% off your purchase. If you've been enjoying the War on Cars, go to thewaroncars.org, click on Become a Patreon supporter, and starting at just $2 a month, you'll get stickers, other goodies, and access to exclusive bonus episodes. You'll also join the ranks of a lot of great people, including our top sponsors, Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the Law Office of the Car on White in New York, Drew Raines, and Virginia Baker. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by me. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Design. On behalf of Aaron Napperstek and Sarah Goodyear, I'm Doug Gordon, and this is The War on Cars.